Section 38 of Shakespeare Identified. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Fraser. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Manhood of de Vere, Final Example, Part 1. Chapter 13. Manhood of Edward de Vere, Final or Shakespearean Period, 1590-1604. I think the best judgment, not of this country only, but of Europe at large, is slowly pointing to the conclusion that Shakespeare is the chief of all poets hitherto, the greatest intellect who, in our recorded world, has left record of himself in the way of literature. Thomas Carlyle, Heroes we have now reached a stage in our argument at which the study of dates becomes of paramount importance. Indeed, we are tempted to think that the failure to appreciate the precise significance of certain dates has gone far towards preventing an earlier discovery of the authorship of Shakespeare's plays. We can quite believe that other investigators have actually thought of the Earl of Oxford in connection with the problem, and have dismissed the idea because of certain chronological considerations, which may have been thought to stand in the way, but which, if carefully examined, would have actually been found to support and confirm the theory. If, therefore, in this and succeeding chapters we dwell at some length on the question of dates, it is because what at first blush might give rise to doubts, when correctly estimated, is found to furnish one of the strongest links in our chain of argument. When, then, we come to these chronological matters, we ask for them a very close and patient attention. In entering upon the final, and as we believe the most important period, in the life of Edward de Vere, we must first describe briefly the position in which he then found himself, in respect to certain matters not directly literary. Although we have only the barest indications upon which to work, we judge that for the first two or three years of this period, things were not going well with him. It is not improbable that the suspension of his dramatic activities was due, in part at any rate, to the exhaustion of his material resources. His tendency to spend lavishly is unmistakable, and his play-acting and literary associates would provide an almost unlimited field for the exercise of his generosity. His own absorption in these interests must, moreover, have tended to place his financial affairs at the mercy of agents, and to throw them into confusion. To this must be added the almost royal state which he seems to have maintained in some respects, for at one point we get a glimpse of him travelling en famille with a retinue of twenty-eight servants. Suggestions of this kind of thing, we note in passing, are found in The Taming of the Shrew, treated much more from the point of view of the master than of the servant. The need for ready cash must often have been pressing, and this need he seems to have satisfied by selling estates at ruinously low rates. Like the man with a trick of melancholy mentioned in All's Well, he sold many a goodly manner for a song, and possibly at the same time developed that contempt for land buyers expressed by Hamlet in the grave-digging scene. It is interesting to notice that when Iago who, we have supposed, represented Oxford's receiver, 
urges upon one of his victims, put money in thy purse, he meets immediately with the response, I will sell my lands. What Oxford's exact financial position may have become, we cannot say, but it was evidently very low, for we are told that, after Lady Oxford's death, Burley refused to give any further assistance to his son-in-law. The implication is, of course, that Burley had been assisting him before this. No particulars of such assistance are given, and we may perhaps be pardoned if we are somewhat sceptical upon the matter. In any case, it must always be borne in mind that we depend chiefly upon Burley's own account of these things. It is clear, at any rate, that although one of the foremost of the aristocracy, and originally a man of great wealth, he had, by the time of which we are now treating, found himself in reduced circumstances. Like Bassanio in The Merchant of Venice, he had seriously disabled his estate by something showing a more swelling port than his means would grant continuance. And, like Bassanio, he also in some measure repaired his fortunes by marriage with a lady richly left. Whether, like Portia, she was fair, and fairer than that word, of wondrous virtues, we are not told. But if our theory of the authorship of the plays of Shakespeare is maintained, it is evident that the years he spent with her were to himself years of great productivity, whilst their importance in the history of the world's literature can hardly be overestimated. The exact date of this marriage is not given, but from the context we judge it to have taken place either at the end of 1591 or during 1592. As Sir Sidney Lee suggests, that it is improbable that any of Shakespeare's plays made their appearance before 1592, we may take the marriage of Edward de Vere with Elizabeth Trentham as synchronising with the advent of the Shakespearean dramas. If, however, we take 1590 as marking in a general way their first appearance, he would still have had two years of retirement after the events recorded in our last chapter by way of special preparation for his work. Whilst if we take the year of his marriage as the real beginning, he had the advantage of four years of retirement, preceded by a probable ten years, and a possible twelve years of active association with the drama, quite a considerable and appropriate preparation for the work upon which he was entering. During part of the time immediately preceding his second marriage, he was living in apartments in London, an arrangement suggestive of that seclusion which we deem one of the essentials for the production of work of the distinctive character of Shakespeare's plays. For we must state here what must be emphasised later, that the Shakespearean dramas, as we have them now, are not to be regarded as plays written specially to meet the demands of a company of actors. They are stage plays that have been converted into literature. This we hold to be their distinctive character, demanding in their author two distinct phases of activity, if not two completely separate periods of life for their production, and, for the production of such a literature as this, freedom from distractions is a most important condition. The seclusion of de Vere, which we believe Spencer at this very time to have been lamenting in The Tears of the Muses, has all the appearance, therefore, of a condition imposed upon himself, as necessary to the fulfilment of his purpose. Now, we must draw attention to what is probably as significant a fact as any we have met. From the time of his second marriage till the time of his death in 1604, the record we have of him 
is almost a complete blank in sir sidney lee's account of him one very short paragraph covers the whole of these twelve years we are told that he was living in retirement not however in the country but in london or its suburb hackney where therefore he would be in direct contact with the theatre life of shoreditch and that great movement of dramatic and literary rebirth so aptly described by dean church but of which spencer in fifteen ninety had evidently detected no promise two public appearances alone are recorded of him during the whole of this time but as even these were in the last two years of his life we have a period of ten years which may be considered void of all important record and the two events recorded of the last two years involve no appreciable encroachment upon his time and energies this then is the position in fifteen ninety two he is placed in comfortable circumstances he is just forty-two years of age and therefore entering upon the period of the true maturity of his powers he has behind him a poetic and a dramatic record of a most exceptional character his poems are by far the most shakespearean in quality and form of any of that time his dramatic record places him in the forefront of playwriters then a silence of an additional twelve years succeeds the four years of apparent idleness and this twelve years of comfort and seclusion exactly corresponds to the period of the amazing outpouring of the great shakespearean dramas unless therefore we are to imagine the complete stultification of every taste and interest he had hitherto shown he must have been on any theory of shakespearean authorship one of the most interested spectators of this culmination of elizabethan literature and he himself the natural connecting link between it and the past yet never for one moment does he appear in it at all his own record for these years is a blank and no specimens of his dramatic productions survive in weighing evidence in certain cases what may be called negative evidence is frequently of a more compelling force than the more positive kind if such a dramatic and literary outburst had had no original connection with de vere it must inevitably have swept him within its influence but the very man who had the greatest affinities with this particular type of production and who up to within a year or two of the first appearance of william shakespeare had been amongst the foremost to encourage and patronize literary men was never once heard of either in connection with william shakespeare or the shakespearean drama so far as these momentous happenings in his own peculiar domain are concerned he might have been supposed to have been already dead we have therefore a most remarkable combination of silences a silence as to his own occupations during these important years and a silence as to any manifestation of interest in a work which under any circumstances must have touched him deeply we can only suppose that he did not wish to be seen in the matter and the only feasible explanation of such a wish is the theory of authorship we are now urging as a matter of fact the real blank in his records so far as any adequate occupation is concerned is one of sixteen years from fifteen eighty eight to sixteen o four this vast lacuna must now we believe be filled in by the shakespearean literature for he who was supposed to be sitting in idle cell had already spoken of himself in an early lyric as one that never am less idle low 
than when I am alone. We would add at this point certain particulars respecting his domiciliation and life in or near London that are not without interest in respect to our problem. He resided for some years at Cannon Row, Westminster, and this would put him, by means of the ferry, in direct touch with theatrical activities on Bankside, and thence, by an easy walk with Newington Butts, the scene of many of the dramatic activities of the Lord Admiral's company. This company is associated with the performance of plays by Marlowe, to whom Shakespeare acknowledges indebtedness. It also performed in the early years of this period plays bearing titles afterwards borne by Shakespeare plays. The following passage from a letter by one Anthony Atkinson, showing as the Earl of Oxford in relationship with the Lord Admiral, Charles Howard of Effingham, Earl of Nottingham, of Spanish Armada fame, has some interest for us. The Lord Admiral doth credit Captain Fenner, who excuses Elston, and the Earl of Oxenford sent word by Corley that Elston was a dangerous man. The events do not concern us. It is the mere fact of personal dealings which matters. Oxford's residence at Hackney, the London suburb immediately adjacent to Shoreditch, then the scene of Burbage's theatrical enterprises and the centre of the theatrical life of London, has already been mentioned. A somewhat more interesting detail concerns Bishopsgate, continuous with Shoreditch towards the south. Although, so far as we know, Oxford never resided in this district, we find him, in 1595, addressing a letter to Burley from Bishopsgate, Hatfield MSS. Evidence points to William Shakespeare being resident there at the time, and to his having next year removed to Southwark, which was soon to take the place of Shoreditch, as the theatrical centre of London. Thus, we see him moving quite close to the Shakespeare work, but never in it. Yet, during these years, his letters show unmistakably the clearness and vigour of his intellect. The published documents do not supply the full text in all cases, but little Shakespearean touches appear. Words in faithful minds are tedious, is one expression already quoted in our Troilus argument. His shifts and jugglings are so gross and palpable, is another, clearly suggestive of this palpable gross play in A Midsummer Night's Dream, 5-1, or such juggling and such knavery in Troilus and Cressida, 2-3. The letters are, for the most part, formal and businesslike, but the poet's tendency to express himself in similes and metaphors is irrepressible. Not only is there abundant evidence of unimpaired mental power, there is also evidence of his being closely occupied with some work. A letter addressed to him by a member of another branch of the family apologises in a way which does not seem conventional for breaking in upon his occupations, so that whatever his pursuits may have been, he was not regarded by those who were in a position to know as a man spending his leisure altogether in amusements or in idleness. Yet there is no external evidence, with one interesting exception, of his interesting himself in dramatic work of any kind during these years, though, curiously enough, Mears, as late on as 1598, when Oxford had apparently been dead to the dramatic world for ten years, places his name at the head of those dramatists who were best for comedy. One of the greatest obstacles to the acceptance of our theory of the authorship of Shakespeare's plays 
will be a certain established conception of the mode in which they were produced and issued a conception which arose of necessity out of the old theory william shakespeare being but a young man at the time when the issue of the poems and plays began and having to write it is supposed in order to supply the immediate needs of what has been unwarrantably called his company of play-actors it has been necessary to assume that each play was begun finished and staged by itself in a definite period of time and that no sooner was this done in respect to one play than the next must be put in preparation a man with no accumulated reserves immersed it is assumed in all the business of directing his company and building up his own private fortune at the same time would be compelled to finish off and have completely done with each playwriting task just as it presented itself this he is supposed to have accomplished in a manner which can only be described as miraculous and seeing the large number of plays which are understood to have existed before a certain date not only could there be no intervals for recuperation and the freshening of his conceptions whilst the flood of dramas was at its height but there has been a real difficulty in finding reasonable spaces of time for them all to be written consequently the supposition that these plays were written by william shakespeare of stratford involves the belief in a series of stupendous creative efforts with indefinitely assignable dates and this conception of a fixed order of production with settled dates for the different plays from fifteen ninety two onward the rapid succession of which betokened the genius of almost superhuman fecundity is bound to follow us into the discussion of a theory of authorship to which it does not apply all the mass of data that has been collected with much labour respecting the first appearance of plays or the date of their registration or publication comes to have a totally different significance and indeed loses a large part of its value when severed from the supposed miraculous productivity of the stratford man perhaps its chief value may now consist in illustrating the folly of ever supposing that so prodigious an achievement could have taken place such a change in the personality and antecedents of the author as we now propose alters the significance of all that shakespearean erudition in which mere inference has been passed off as established fact and demands a difficult revolution in mental attitude towards the question of the manner and times of the production of the work what is necessary in the first place is to put aside all mere inference to look at the facts that have been established respecting the issuing of the plays in the light of the quality and contents of the work and to determine whether all these taken together are more suggestive of an author working under william shakespeare's or edward de vere's conditions whether the work is suggestive of a hasty enforced production amid a multiplicity of other activities or of painstaking concentration of mind on the part of a writer relieved from material and other anxieties and whether it suggests a writer living as it were from hand to mouth in the production of his dramas or of one who began the issue with large reserves already in hand in dealing with the dating of shakespeare's plays apart from the system of inferential dates that has grown up around shakespearean study we stand on most uncertain ground we have dates of the registration of certain works dates of printing and publication dates on which it is known that certain plays were performed and we have contemporary lists of plays that show us that certain dramas were in existence 
at the time the lists were compiled but such a thing as an authoritative record of the actual writing of a play does not exist so far as is yet known all that the facts bear witness to is that some of the works existed at certain dates though whether they had existed five ten or twenty years before then is all a matter of conjecture conjecture which may be made very reliably when it concerns william shakespeare of stratford but which may be entirely astray when another author is substituted nevertheless if we accept in a general way the dates that have been assigned we find that starting with love's labours lost in fifteen ninety or fifteen ninety two the early years of oxford's retirement and finishing with othello in sixteen o four the year of oxford's death we have in these an overwhelming preponderance of the greatest of the shakespearean dramas this is then succeeded by a period in which there is greater uncertainty attached to the suggested dates and a larger admixture of non-shakespearean work for in these later years we are assured that the dramatist had reverted to an earlier practice of collaborating with others end of section thirty eight recording by daniel fraser